Hello and welcome back to the European Review of History podcast. My name is Dr Ruby Rutter and this is episode 6 of our Digital History series where we've been looking at how technology and digital innovation are influencing our understanding of the past and shaping our practice of history as a discipline. Today I'm joined by Claire Miles, an award-winning history blogger who runs the Historian blog which focuses predominantly on Welsh history and period dramas. Claire has been featured in a number of national magazines, has contributed to other history blogs such as Love British History, mainly museums and an historian about town, and has made appearances on history podcasts like History Hack and Queen's Podcast. Thank you so much for joining us, Claire. Would you like to start us off by telling us a little bit more about what inspired you to start the Historian blog? Well, I've always loved history. As, you know, all us history buffs, we go start with a very long story about, oh, I've loved history since I was a little child, and I'm I'm no exception. Um, I've always loved history. I was the child that went to the National Trust properties instead of Alton Towers. That was me. <laughs> um, and about six, about six years ago now, I found myself, I was off work ill for an extended period of time, and I was very, very bored, as you can imagine. And I was on Instagram already. I was following some great historical content creators. And I just obviously thought, why don't I give this a shot? Um, so I started off microblogging on Instagram and it kind of went from there, really. And I learned how to uh, build and set up my own WordPress blog. So that's out there on the Internet now. And um, yeah, that's how it kind of started, really, a bit by accident. I just was looking for something to do. Thought, oh, I'll give this a shot. And I kind of got addicted to it along the way a little bit. That's fantastic. But what was obviously, you know, I guess quite a miserable time being being poorly has, you know, resulted in you being able to create this fantastic blog and um and really create a community online of like-minded people. Um, was there one particular area of interest or, you know, historical figure that that you were particularly fascinated by? Well, I studied Welsh history at university. That's kind of my background, that's my bag. And I kind of concentrated in medieval and early modern history. So that's kind of like the time period that really grabs me. I know it's a bit of a cliche, but I really, really like the early modern Welsh history with regards to, I hate to say the Tudors, everybody loves the Tudors, but it's not just about the Tudors because they were Welsh, obviously. And I love Nathan Armin's work, his books that he's doing on, on, on the early Tudors at the moment. Really, really like those. But it's more about the, the impact that having the Tudors on the throne had on Welsh society and culture in general. Everyone looks at you know, over the border to England, but actually it was a really transformative time here. So um, that's the one that kind of really gets my juices flowing. Yeah, you're right, because the importance of Wales on the history of the Tudors often gets brushed over, if not completely ignored in sort of mainstream narratives. Um, You sort of know of it as the place where the Tudors originated from, but then Henry VII becomes king and then we kind of move on from there. But of course, there's a wide ranging implications for, for the country once they had a Welsh king on the throne. Yeah, it's just Wales had suffered like in terms of the later medieval period and the, and the early medieval period to a certain extent. You know, Wales was effectively a second-class nation, and there was loads of rules and restrictions about what offices a Welshman could and couldn't hold, what languages they could speak in the courts, and so forth. You know, really, really um, negative stuff. 
And then all of a sudden overnight that's, you know, all these opportunities opened up to, to these families and like you had people going across the border to seek new opportunities, like loads of Welsh people in the court, the Cecils, you know, Blanche Parry. Um, I can't remember the other ones that were in Elizabeth's court at the top of my head, but it's just such an interesting, um, it's such an interesting period of, of time to study. Yeah, absolutely. And I've I've also noticed that you you know, you mentioned Blanche Parry there, but but Welsh women's history is also really important to you and features quite a lot on your blog and in, in your other work. Yeah, so we're very lucky the last decade or so, you know, there's been such a surge in interest and in research in women's history and there's some great work being done and great stories coming out. But I still feel there's quite a bit of untapped potential here in Welsh history. We've got some really, you know, we've got a few key figures that everyone knows about and and their awareness is growing um but I just feel there's so much more to do here really yeah definitely and so with running your blog and and your social media accounts do you find that that people are coming across your work and feeling quite invigorated and inspired because they've maybe not been exposed to work um I find I get kind of kind of two groups of people. I've got the like the, the diehard Welsh history enthusiasts, people like who live and holiday a lot in this country who are really interested in finding new places to visit, for example. And then I've got people who come to me for the different type of content that I produce, like the period drama content, or people who've been following me for a while because my content has has changed over the time that I've been blogging. And I, you know, the feedback I've got is that I've, I'm opening their eyes to, you know, history that they didn't know before. If you live outside of outside of this country, I imagine that you don't know much about Welsh history. It's not exactly a popular popular thing to study. So I'm quite lucky in that I get the two camps of people following me. And that brings me perfectly on to my next question. So as you know, this series is about digital history and how history as a discipline is developing in line with technology. And so as someone who creates historical content, I wonder what your thoughts and views are on the way people access and understand history now using technology versus maybe even just 10 years ago. Oh, that's a really, really good question. Um I think you can use social media for access in history in a number of ways. In terms of, I remember when I went to university many, many years ago now, like the internet was in its kind of formative stages then. I remember when I had my first laptop that was actually Wi-Fi enabled. Yes, I am that old. <laughs> I remember those days. But in terms of kind of like recommendations for um, latest, you know, history books to read, what was coming up, the latest period dramas to watch. You know, we didn't really, we didn't have social media to share all these recommendations we, and, and, and just basic things like that. So in terms of kind of social media opening and, and the internet in general, opening up history to a wider audience, I it, it really, I think it's really, really been quite, you know, quite important. I, I came from, I come from a non-academic background. I'm the first person in my family to go to university. So I didn't have people to, recommend books or make connections to groups or point to historical associations that might be of interest to me before I went to uni or that might help me with my work but now that the internet's out there you could you've got that at your fingertips you've got community and collaborators at your fingertips um I think Twitter's a good one for that so I think Twitter's been quite important in overall bringing out and focusing on the underrepresented voices in historical debates and discourse you you know, we can go to a bookshop, we can buy books from people who, you know, who are in academia, 
who are part, you know, part of that, who are well established and will write books on really popular subjects like the Tudors again. But if you want to find something different, if you want to find new research, something groundbreaking, people, like I say, people who are of colour, people in the underrepresented groups, and what work they're doing in their historical fields. I'd like to go to Twitter and they're usually having a really, really, really interesting debate. And they're talking not just to established historians, they're talking to, you know, uh, younger researchers, they're talking to history students, general history enthusiasts. It's a really kind of open and democratic space to have those sort of discussions and debates in. Um, like I said, like social media is really good for get, picking up recommendations for books, places to visit. That's what I do, things to watch. But I do think... It's quite ironic in a way that I find it is also, you have, off, I don't know if you discussed this in any of, other, of your other podcasts, there's quite a lot of limitations, I suppose, in terms of digital history and social media. Like in some, in some ways you have to treat what you're viewing on the internet, I suppose this applies to lots of content on the internet, like you would any other historical source, you know, Who's written it? What's their motivation? <laughs> um, is it going to be a bit biased? You know, it's just one snippet of a bigger picture. And that's so it's kind of one thing that you have to be aware of with, with consuming historical content on the internet. You're still going to get those same issues that you would have, um, you know, if you had that historical content elsewhere. You're still going to have to use your... Your, your critical thinking skills and so forth to put what you're consuming into that bigger historical picture. So it's weird. It's opened up so many avenues and possibilities for historians in one way, but at the same time, we're still dealing with the same issues that we had with any other type of historical content. Yeah, it's really interesting. I mean, this this idea of of being able to analyze the content that that is put online is something that has really shot through all of the the episodes in this series and and how do we navigate that? I mean, one example that springs to mind because I was personally uh I personally bought into it was this uh photograph of a wooden bomb. And the sort of accompanying text said that this was a, a wooden bomb that was made by the RAF um, during the Second World War when um, pilots saw that Germans were building a sort of fake um, airbase made of wood or a fake village made of wood. And so they waited until the, the structures were complete and then they bombed it with these these fake wooden bombs. And objectively, that's a very funny story and it is quite, you know, that kind of surreal British humour. But it's not true at all. I think the object in question is actually a life float or a, a light of some kind, completely unrelated to the RAF. So you have to ask the question is, why is that story being created and disseminated? And what is it communicating, not about World War II, but about contemporary society? So even though the story itself is not true, it can then still be taken as a source referencing, you know, how we're living today. Um and even though it, you know, it seems fairly harmless, that it's kind of shot through with an undertone of, of, you know, nationalism and Britishness, keep calm and carry on, and obviously reverting back to the war. Um, it is a kind of maybe British exceptionalism type story. Although I think it's, 
you know, a little bit milder than, than some of the other examples that you could think of on the internet. And so I suppose the task is to make sure that inaccuracies like this can be called out, not in a condescending way, but, you know, gently nudging towards the truth. But it but it is difficult. Like I say, this wooden bomb post circulates every few months and it's, you know, like whack-a-mole in that sense. I've got one post on my blog. Sorry, <laughs> plugging my blog here. No, no, please do. I wrote, I wrote it many, many years ago when I first started the blog. And it's all about um, memes, memes as historical sources. I'm quite proud of it because I wrote it, like I said, a couple of years ago and the BBC actually used it in one of their... Um, one of the technology articles, not well, about a year or so ago now, and it's, I picked up on that problem. It's like, yeah, in terms of like us using memes as historical sources, and I think we will do in the future because it's a space, they're just like a modern day caricature, aren't they? They're, just, they're going to end up in an exam paper at some point. How do you, like, how do you tell where that meme first came from in the future? It's not like you can go and find it, go, oh, this is the first edition of the book or the newspaper, and this is exactly when we know that this started to be used. And I'm like, it's a whole different digital skill set as well to even fight, you know, where does this meme originate from? What original context was it used in? That's a whole other set of skills that, that I do not have, <laughs> that many people have. There's so many, yeah, the use of technologies go open open so many questions. Definitely. And I think we're in this really interesting moment where we're still working out how this content and this technology can be used. And there's you know, this constant drive to create more, get more likes and views. But there isn't really a, a clearly defined way of organising it or archiving it. I mean, someone is probably working on this, um, but I certainly wouldn't know how to find the origins of a meme. But I often see interviews or, or posts about people whose likeness was used for a really famous meme. And they're talking about how much it impacts their life in that they've become associated with an, a universally understood moment or emotion or comic reaction to something. Often due to some stock photos that they took thinking that they'd be used for, I don't know, like a catalogue or commercials or something. And so now they have to navigate this odd life with the very weird kind of celebrity status that they never really pursued or benefited from. Definitely. And very weird form of celebrity. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I mean, on the other hand, though, you do have people using like Renaissance paintings and um, medieval manuscripts to create these memes. I mean, I'm thinking of that. I think there's a Twitter account called Weird Little Guys mm -hmm. that finds, you know, funny illuminations and and reposts those, um, which can only, you know, widen exposure to, you know, people that are suddenly being introduced to this kind of imagery. Um, they may not have seen it before, so that can only be a good thing. But, yeah, it seems that like ugly Renaissance babies in particular take take quite a lot of, of flack on, on the meme circuit. They do, they do. And I also think it's like, in terms of kind of accessibility of... of... Of, of messages and, and so forth memes are kind of like I think you've got to be extremely clever to distill like complex historical situations down into one picture and a couple of words of one meme I think I, I hats off to the people who do it it's, I think it is a bit bit of an art form really oh absolutely it's definitely definitely an art form um to know the exact image that's going to go with what you're trying to say um even even sometimes you'll see ones about I don't know Henry VIII or something and it will kind of relate to Brexit or something like that and there'll be a kind of a link there and it's like you have to know about current policy around you know the UK's position in Europe and then also, you know, the the Reformation. And there's lots of themes there that you're having to tie together, plus then 
communicating it in a in a visual way is there's definitely a PhD project in it. I mean, there's maybe someone listening to this who's going, it's my PhD project. <laughs> but it also ties into my next question, which is about the way you discuss period dramas on your blog, because they feature really prominently and you always have a really interesting analysis and discussion of period dramas. And I just wondered if you wanted to kind of give us a little overview of of, of why period dramas are important and, and what got you talking about them. Well, I've always loved period dramas. And uh, when I was, I've, like I said, I've been blogging for a couple of years and over over time, you know, my my job, I've been very, very lucky. I've been able to progress my job and my time that I've been able to spend on the blog has become a little bit less. So I sat down one day, I was like, right, you know, if you're going to write about something, what are you going to write about? And I was there thinking, right, I need to make best use of my time. I'm going to write about something that, you know, write, write about a form of history that I know that I will be doing week in, week out. Mm. I know that I will be able to produce content on and I won't have to, you know, put extra effort into it because I will be doing it anyway because I love it. And and I love period dramas. And luckily for us here in Wales, they film loads of period dramas in and around Cardiff. So it kind of there's kind of a bit of a crossover there. So ultimately that's why I started blogging about period dramas. And it is actually the most popular content on the blog. Um I think, yeah, like you, people just want to know what's coming up um and have a bit of a discussion about it really. Yeah, and I do find that period dramas do spark a lot of of discourse, especially online. Everybody loves talking about them, especially if it's, you know, a Jane Austen adaptation where they'll be like, I don't like the way they took that character's direction. Um and I always thought, you know, it it stimulates a lot of conversation mainly because it's so much fun to watch something and then to like slate it, love it, rave about it online and and have that kind of discussion. It's it doesn't have to be super serious although it can be um but it is you know another form of digital content although older than the internet because obviously we've had period dramas for well I suppose over a century now if we think about the the early Hollywood adaptations of things but again it's that same appeal in that it's accessible to all you can go in watch something be entertained not have to know anything about the period to get it and enjoy it and I know some people can be a bit snobby about it but I think period dramas are a really important way of exploring the past on a public platform. No, I totally agree. And I period dramas, obviously, people go. There's some very traditional type period dramas, and you obviously get new adaptations of old classics, like the Great Expectation ones that's just been on. But they're not like very often. You also get something like really new and groundbreaking. And I think Bridgerton is often used as an example of this. And I, I I'm guilty. I think, oh yes, nice light fluffy watch. Bridgerton loved it. I absolutely love it. Yeah, same. But at the same time. The, the colorblind casting, you know, that really has triggered lots of conversation about about you know, colorblind casting in the industry in general, and it's also made, started conversations about you know you know history, the history of slavery at that time, and so forth. That may not have happened if it hadn't been that specific piece of TV. Absolutely. Uh, so it can, while period dramas in some people's eyes may be old and fusty and very traditional, actually they can be quite, you know, quite thought-provoking and affect change as well. And I also, there's some period dramas I feel, they come, they come out at the right time almost. They're still really, really relevant. 
like I'm looking forward to seeing Oppenheimer this summer all about the invention the race to invent the atomic bomb and just looking at the trailer of that that came out I think it was yesterday or the day before yesterday I've I got chills I got goosebumps because I'm there thinking you know effectively we're in, we're in a cold war in Russia now with the situation in Ukraine I'm just there thinking wow the parallels here um yeah and I could probably give numerous examples of other ones that have given me chills like that it's just even though they are old dramas set in the past, the themes and the stories and the messages that come through in some of them, they're very relevant, very modern. Definitely. And, you know, it might not even be a director or a producer's initial thought to create those parallels. You know, they might have started planning Oppenheimer way before the Ukraine conflict started. But because it's something that we as a society are experiencing and are aware of those themes in our day to day life, it kind of pulls the meaning into focus even more. And we can take a lot more from it and like you say it gives us chills and provokes a reaction that allows us to both see the past in a different way but also contextualize where we are now yeah no i think i, I just remember the name of the other one that when i watched it i think it would have been the year before last potentially um it was on netflix the trial of the chicago seven and um it was all about like the, the um a situation in the 70s um, where a peaceful protest turned into a violent clash. It was all about the court case that came out off the back of it. And it was around the time that the Black Lives Matters movement was, you know, was very, um, you know, prominent in the media. And there were discussions about, you know, the, you know, protests and the legality of protests, et cetera, and clamping down on it and so forth. And again, that was when I went like, oh, this is really, really close to the bone. Is, um, this is, this is, um, this is very chilling. But like you said, it's probably been planning, planned in the you know, for years. But yeah, it just came out at the right time and and it became a very, very moving picture because of it. Yeah. Yeah. Um impossible question now, but what historical drama or film do you think stayed with you the most? Oh really, really good question. Um I don't watch war films because I, I cry like a baby. I, I can't handle them, I would be open honest, because I'm thinking many people would say, oh, it would be a war film. Well, I just, I, 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 I can't watch war films. Um, oh, my God, that's a really, really good question. I, I've, got like a, I've got like a couple of top period dramas, but I'm, I'm really, really bad at like all my light, fluffy Pride and Prejudices and stuff. Yeah, I think I would say the BBC Pride and Prejudice would be, for me, I mean, I think it's everybody's gateway drug to period dramas, really. It's just perfection. I mean, obviously, there's there's things that are technically, historically wrong with it. I think when they're in the inn at Lampton, the set painting out of the window makes it look like they're about 50 stories high. But you just watch <laughs> it and you love it and it's brilliant. The acting's brilliant. And um, yeah, I think that would probably be the one. But I don't know if it stayed with me. I guess I'm I'm questioning my own question now. Yeah. Oh, and I love the um, Elizabeth films with Kate, with Kate Blanchett as well. I just because of my age, that was kind of again, it was like my first kind of major depiction of Elizabeth the first on screen. It was like, wow, 
Yeah. I remember when Sophia Coppola's Marie Antoinette was released and I was just mind blown. It's probably what made me uh, want to be an 18th centuryist, but I was just desperate for any kind of 18th century content after that. I think I watched uh, Dangerous Liaisons, Casanova and possibly even Barry Lyndon, which I think is quite a feat given it's like three and a half hours long. Um, <laughs> but Marie Antoinette really did inspire me. And I think it's because... It's that mix of both a period drama and a chick flick. It's beautifully shot. The clothes are gorgeous. Close-up shots of cake. I mean, what more do you want? But there are also subtle references to modern culture too. Like I think there's a scene with a pair of pastel purple converse. Um, And I know some people were a bit irritated by it at the time. But it's an inclusion that gets you to think about youth culture and, and kind of situates her as a young person who had the same naivety and immaturity about the world that most young people have, but mixed with unbelievable wealth, power, influence. And so it allows you to contextualise her story better, even though it's an inclusion that's out of context. But I suppose it does force us to think about how much accuracy matters in historical dramas. It's a question we all come back to. <laughs> I'm I'm of the of the school of thought that ultimately, a, a historical drama, a period drama, is there for entertainment, and to be a good period drama, that you still have to have the essential elements that any drama or TV show would have to get right in order to be a good period drama. Historical accuracy is important, yes, but. If you haven't got a good storyline, if the writing's awful, if, if it's been miscast, no one's going to watch it, no one's going to like it, no one's going to take anything away from it. So while I I would love them to be as historically accurate as possible, I don't think it's the primary aim of period dramas to do that. <laughs> no, exactly. And I mean, I'm definitely guilty of being a bit like, oh, well, that's not quite right. Like, when I first started watching Bridgerton, the costumes really annoyed me, specifically the tying the corset really tight scene at the Featherington's house in the very beginning. Um, I mean, a discourse on corsets in period drama is a whole other... I could have a whole podcast on that, really. I mean, they're wearing Empire Line dresses, so why they'd need to cinch their waist. But anyway, I digress. See, I'm doing it now. <laughs> but um, I just told myself to let it go and just enjoy it. And I think I might have rewatched the first series at least 10 times now. It's like a favourite thing to just stick on in the background or comfort watch because it's it's just enjoyable and it's entertaining, like you say. Now, it's interesting to note with the new Queen Charlotte series, they've actually put at the front, you know, we've taken liberties with the historical content of this or, or words to that effect. So it's not like, if you do that, it's not like the audience doesn't even know. You know, they've had, they've had a fair warning. They've had a fair warning. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And and you find that it's always a certain kind of person that's particularly against this. And suddenly you've found a, a passion for, for historical accuracy. And it's always because it furthers some horrible agenda that they have going on. But ultimately... You know, something like Bridgerton, it's a fantasy, it's a love story, it's not based in reality, it's fiction, and it it makes no difference to the story, but it makes a lot of difference to people who aren't used to seeing yeah. that kind of inclusivity on the screen in period dramas. And ultimately, nobody's trying to rewrite history 
children will still learn what happened and and how things played out and the the makeup of society and how unfair it was um and i think really actually having diversity on screen in that way i think will kind of help highlight that unfairness and also cement where we are as a society today and it's not rewriting anything it's just including people when we want to tell these stories definitely like you said when they when they enter another environment be it a school be it a museum be it whatever they will have expectations of seeing like you said a variety of histories that may not there be there right now so that can only be a good thing yeah definitely and hopefully it will push uh producers and directors and whoever to to create content that that highlights showcases these stories i mean in the last 15 years i think we've seen about you know five films about Mm. anne boleyn um which is great but you know she's not the only woman or there are so many other stories that that deserve to be told and, and done justice and ultimately the reason that people love period dramas is because they're human stories you know stories about people falling in love getting married being betrayed all the tensions that exist in everyday life and this isn't specific to the period in which it happened. It's it's part of the human condition, the things that we, you know, are aware of in our everyday life. And ultimately, I, it really doesn't matter who delivers that story. It, as long as it's compelling, yeah. as long as it's well done, I think that's all that matters, really. Yeah. Like I said, if you don't have that good story, people aren't going aren't gonna to watch. Yep. Um, okay, so this might be a bit of a catty question, but... Which period drama have you watched that you don't think hit the mark? Oh, that's a naughty question. Uh, I'm trying to think of ones that I've started and I just can't get into. Oh, that's a really, really good question. If I don't like something, I won't finish it. I won't stick with it. It's not worth my time. I watched um, episode one of the new Tom Jones series. I couldn't get into it. Great Expectations, the BBC adaptation, couldn't get into that one either. Um, oh, I really like, I, I've got a lot of time for stars, you know, the American Channel, they do all the female-centred historical dramas. Did they do Harlots? Is that where Harlots was? Uh, I, oh, that's Hulu. Hulu. The stars were the one like, the, you know, the white queen, the Spanish prince. Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah, and I, oh, it's so frustrating because some of them I, I absolutely love. I loved Recovering Elizabeth. I know there was a lot of debate online about that, but I loved it. But I couldn't stand The Spanish Princess and I couldn't get past the first 10 minutes of it, basically. Um, and so that frustrates me. They, they, they seem to either really hit the mark or really mm. miss the mark. Um, but yeah, those are some of the ones which I've, uh, I've struggled, um, struggled to get into. <laughs> Yeah, I I just finished becoming Elizabeth, and I really enjoyed that as well. But I had similar feelings with Ray, and I think I think it was because the costumes were so much like modern prom dresses. I just yeah. was like, come on, let's at least have a go at trying to to set the scene. Um, I think another one I couldn't get to was uh, season two of Sanditon. For some reason, I just I couldn't get through it. I quite enjoyed the first series, but um, yeah, I couldn't I couldn't I couldn't gel with the second series. Yeah, it wasn't as good as series one, and now just because they've they've had series three, they've had the final series in America, and they haven't even 
set a release date for it over here. So now I'm kind of like rapidly losing interest just because it's, it's taken so long to come out every year. I didn't even know that they'd started season three. Yeah, it's all been done, the finished, completed. And now I'm trying to stay, stay away from the spoilers. Um, okay, so final question is a bit of a fun one. If you had the choice, what period drama would you like to see made? Like, would it be a book adaptation or a t- story of someone's life? And how would you produce it? How would you cast it? Well, I'm very, very lucky. I'm a really lucky girl in that two period dramas that I've been wanting to be made for quite a while are actually being produced at the moment. I want to mention those two first, just because whenever anyone in the past has asked me this question, um, this has been my stock answer, because I love the Shard Lake books, yes. the Shard Lake Chronicles, have you read them? Yeah, they're brilliant. I love them, they're my best, my favourite historical fiction novels, and I just think they're so well written, and now Disney are making an adaptation of the first book. I didn't know this. Um, and, uh, what's his name, Sean Bean is going to be Thomas Crowell. I can't quite see myself. I'm sure it'll be brilliant, but I'm sorry, I just can't quite picture it in my head. Well, at least we know he won't die in the first episode this time. <laughs> no, 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 he can't die in this one. Um, um, yeah, so I've been wanting that one to be made for ages, so I'm really, really um, glad that's been made. Yeah, me too. And also they just announced they're doing an adaptation of one of my favourite historical fiction books from, I think it was a year before last, Hamnet. Oh yes, yes. By Matthew Farrell, like, and that's obviously been a, been a play, but they've just announced the casting for that, and I was like, oh, this is going to be. Yeah, that will be brilliant. I've just finished the Marriage Portrait, um, which I think is her novel after yes. Hamnet, and that's brilliant. Yeah, but then if I had to make a entirely new one, yeah, I'm going to be really, really boring here. I said I'd probably make one about Erwan Glindor. I don't think he's had his like his big screen moment yet, and I just. I think it's got all the components of a good story. Like it's got the out, like you know, the outlaw element, you know, the mystery death element. It has some epic war scenes. Um, yeah, you can imagine like the sweeping backdrops of like you know the Welsh mountains and all the landscape in there and the Welsh castles. Um, yeah, yeah, I definitely watched that yeah. for sure. Well, thank you so much for coming on the podcast, Claire. Um, Before we go, would you like to just let people know how they can find your blog and follow you online? Yes, certainly. So my blog's called Historian, H-I-S-D-O-R-Y-A-N. It's called that because all my best friends call me Dory after the fish from Finding Nemo. It's a very long story. You can find me on the internet and on um, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. It's all the same handle, historian, one word. Perfect. Thank you so much. And as always, I will leave all links to Claire's social media in the show notes below. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the European Review of History podcast. Goodbye.